And so we're going to be in the uh, Acts chapter 18, if you want to flip there before we get started. Uh, as if you've been with us when we've been through this journey, we've seen the church grow. We've seen God at work as the early church kind of exploded upon the scene and starts spreading through the known world at that time. And we're going to continue that story as uh, we pick up in Acts chapter uh, 18 with Paul in the middle of his second missionary journey, the second kind of trek around uh, the area, uh, spreading the gospel and planting churches. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Therefore, I thank you so much for this time we can gather as your people, as we can gather as a community of faith and open up your word and see how you have revealed yourself. See how you revealed yourself through history and through time and how you show us how you've grown your church and, and that we can learn from it and see you in the midst of it. That we can see how you not only were at work then, but at work still today in your people. So Lord, your greatness and how you love us and how you are continually at work. We love you, Lord. We seek you and pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Life can be hard. I don't think anyone's surprised by that statement, or probably anyone would disagree with that statement. Life can be hard. Even as Christians, believers in Jesus, life can be hard. One of the most insidious lies ever told is that if you become a Christian, if you follow Christ, life is easy. God never promises an easy life. He gives you great promises about how He's going to save you through Jesus Christ, about how He's going to make you new, how He's going to bring you to who He wants you to be, how He has plans and purposes for us. We have these great promises, but we are never promised an easy life. And the longer we live, it seems like the more real that becomes because life can be hard. And since life gets hard or can be hard and we experience those times when we experience those times of disappointment or trials or pain when we experience the sin or the consequences of sin in our lives when we experience a lie, a broken world populated by broken people since all that is true we need refreshment sometimes our minds might go to drink and food is that party going to provide refreshments for us we say that because we know that food and drink, they can, they can kind of revive us, right? They can kind of rejuvenate us. That They give us energy or they wet our whistle and we can feel kind of renewed because of that. But when we're talking about refreshment, we need, we're saying we need times where we can gain more uh, uh, fresh mental or physical energy or strength. We need times when we can be renewed, our, our batteries can be recharged, our, our cups can be refilled, or we just can become more centered, or however you want to talk, tell us. We need those times when we can have refreshment. That's why when my, my wife goes shopping, she's gone for four hours, and I don't know what's happened because she just needs to get away from the kids, and probably might me, and get refreshed. It's why I like a good book and sit on the porch, or why people dive into hobbies is that they find in these things some element of refreshment or rejuvenation. Refreshment is a human need. A need in times of trials, a need in time of just the business of life. And I believe when we read Acts 18, we see how God meets this need in the life of Paul, but also we can learn from that in our own lives. 
So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to verse 23 verses uh, of chapter 18. Starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, after, Paul, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade, persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm, to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio a, a, was proclaiming, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing, a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have re reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see, it to, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sisinus, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and, uh, and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At uh, Syncria, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And when he came to Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So what's going on with that text? There's a whole lot of names and a whole lot of place names as well in that text. But when we summarize it, when we see how God is interacting with his servants, that's what we see happening in Acts 18, is that we see Paul in the middle of this missionary journey. He's been on the road for a long time. He's been, he's been pouring out his hearts as he preached the gospel to Jews and Gentiles alike, and he's received this mixed response. And in the middle of this, you can kind of maybe see a little bit of Paul's frustration coming to the surface, that he needs to be refreshed. He needs to be reassured. He needs some rejuvenation in the middle of this ministry, and God provides it. Through various means, he refreshes Paul. Through various means, he reassures Paul in this message. We see how God refreshes and reassures his servants. Because Paul needed some refreshment. Some refreshment. He needed some assurance. 
just think about what he has done so far. If we backtrack a little bit and look at what Paul has done in this missionary journey, he has left Antioch within Syria. He's traveled inland. He's gone up to Asia Minor, and he's, he's kind of revisited churches that he's planted. He's, he's uh, presented the gospel again, strengthened the disciples. He's been told not to go here or there. He's experienced that hardship. He receives that vision to head into Macedonia, which is a, a, above uh, Greece, north of Greece. Uh, and he gets there, and he preached the gospel. And how is he received? He gets beaten. He's put in Jaica, and an angry mob is stirred up, and they start pulling Christians from their home and beating them, people that Paul knew, that Paul had probably been instrumental in converting them to who Christ is. And so he's driven away. He's, he's actually secreted away by disciples, and they go down to Berea, but this mob follows them down to Berea. And so again, he's put on a boat, and he's sent off to Athens. And at Athens, he sees people just overwhelmed in idol worship. And he preaches the truth to them, and people mock him, and he stands in front of these philosophers, and they mock him for his beliefs, but he preaches the, the truth to them still, and so he heads off now to Corinth, where we pick up with him today. And in Corinth, he doesn't maybe uh, is not uh, confronted with these intellectual debates about who Christ is, but he says sees immorality in his finest of the day, and he's confronted with that. And through all of that, he has experienced his hardships. He's experienced success in ministry. People have come to know the Christ, who who, who is Jesus. They they've seen this truth, but through it all, in these ups and downs, he sees opposition seems to grow fiercer when people come to know who Christ is. And so you can imagine, he's probably a little tired. He's probably a little frustrated with how things go, and he needs refreshment. And so now he finds himself in of Greece, and it's a kind of a proud city. They, had, uh, they were proud because they were the capital. They were proud because Julius Caesar himself rebuilt the city in uh, um, 46 B.C., and so they had this kind of um, attitude about themselves that were Corinthian and were kind of cool. Not only that, but this was a place of immortality, in, uh, immorality, not immortality, immorality. Uh, basically, everything went in Corinth. It was the Las Vegas of a time, you might say. It was so much so that actually to describe something as Corinthian was to describe it as immoral. And if you know anything about the Greeks to actually get that reputation, that's saying quite a lot. That you could, someone could even be called a Corinthian and it actually was a, a synonym for being a prostitute. Because one of the, the famous things about Corinth was they had this huge temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, that was filled with 1,000 uh, temple prostitutes that would walk the streets and ply their trade. And so immorality of that sexual nature just was running rampant in Corinth. And so here comes Paul bringing the gospel, and he's confronted with this. After a long journey of hardship and ups and downs, and we can place ourselves in his shoes, he needs some reassurance in what he is doing. But the amazing thing is that when you read this, it's the same for us. We need refreshment. Now, we're not, we don't have the same things going on with us as Paul did. We're not confronting these pagan cultures that are, seem so estranged 
from us and with the truth of who Jesus is. We don't have that, that kind of uh, circumstances that Paul has, but we all live amazingly busy lives. We all live amazingly overwhelmed lives. And if you don't, you probably found a secret that I think a lot of us want, want to hear. Because in our day and age, we just live lives that are jammed full of all this, these things, all these things we're doing. And if we're trying to follow Christ, if we're trying to be what a Christian's supposed to be, we feel that pressure, we feel that burden to live our faith in this world. And sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't go well, but we feel overwhelmed. And we need that times of refreshment. We need times of reassurance that God is still with us, that God is still moving in our lives. Sometimes we feel almost pointless in our vocations or what we're doing and question whether God can use us in these things. And in all of this, we just need to feel or know the truth that God refreshes us and that God acts with Paul that we see the truth that he, God, refreshes and reassures his servants. We see God doing this through various means. One of the first ways I see God refreshing Paul is that he provides a community for Paul. If you remember the story, right now Paul has been by himself. He was in Athens by himself, and now he arrives in Corinth, and he's by himself. He has no community of faith, and he's on his his lonesome, and God provides him a community. First for these new friends, where Aquila and Priscilla, these Jewish people who are driven from Rome because the emperor Claudius does not like how uh, Jews and Christians have been fighting, and so he kicks them all out of Rome. And so now Aquila and Priscilla end up in Corinth, and it provides a community. These people had the same trade as Paul. They were tent makers. He was a tent maker. And so now he not only has a place to stay, not only has a place to earn income, but he has a community of faith, and he's with them. And so he can be refreshed and now go back into the synagogue on, on the Sabbath and reason with the Jews, and they go into the marketplace and reason with the Gentiles. That He brings these people of faith to him so he can have that refreshment of the community of faith. These are the, the couple that Paul speaks about at the end of Romans, that they were fellow workmen, so he loves them and he sees them as fellow workers in Christ and sees this godly community as a benefit, as he's refreshed by it. But not only these new companions show up, but Silas and Timothy, his, his missionary team, all of a sudden they show up from Macedonia. And you can imagine the, the, the time of rejoicing that, that they had as his friends rejoined him. The missionary team is back together. Probably high fives ensued. And he's like, yes, we're, we're buddies and we're back together and we can share the gospel together. But not only that, the Silas and Timothy probably brought financial aid from Philippi. As mentioned in 2 Corinthians and Philippians, that this church in Philippi was actually supporting Paul financially. And so they bring that financial gift to him, which is why I can say right after they, they arrived that Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And so he's refreshed through these new friends. He's refreshed from these old friends that come by. He's refreshed because they bring support to him. And all the while, he can now testify to who Christ is. God refreshes and reassures his servants. And one of the biggest ways he refreshes his people is through the community of faith. 
And God still refreshes us in the same, should be refreshing to us. That when we gather together on a Sunday morning, when we gather in each other's homes, when we have those relationships, whether we're doing a Bible study or discipleship, or just friends in the community who are brothers and sisters in Christ, those relationships should be refreshing to us. For they can encourage us, they can lift us up, they build us up, they point us where we back on track when we go wrong, and they, they can just be there for us in times of trials as well as in great times that the Christian community should be refreshing. We should long for it. We should be built up by it. And the sad thing is that one of the failures, if you want to call it a failure, of the modern Western church is that Sunday can just become a time slot for coming to a service and going. And we forget that this community of faith should extend beyond just an hour or two. That extends from Sunday to Sunday. That this extends into our homes as we invite people in and we're invited in. Extends into our lives as we live amongst people who believe and work amongst them and share the gospel with each other and encourage each other again and again that we enter into discipleship or, or Bible studies with people and we continually build this community up of Christians and so we can be refreshed by it and encouraged by this community. That when we think about what the community of faith, of faith to be, I want it to be a, faith, a community that is re refreshing to everyone who comes in that they can know they're loved that they can see opportunities to love people that they can be built up and encouraged and that this truly can be seen as a family as we seek to be with each other not just on sundays but sunday through to sunday as we love each other and pour into each other's lives because we know that god uses that christian community to refresh us to rejuvenate us for the next week, for the next action, the next day as we seek to live for him. God refreshes and reassures his servants. But God didn't just refresh Paul. He also reassures Paul in the midst of what is happening. And we can kind of ask, well, why does Paul need reassurance? Things seem to be going well. He's in Corinth, and yeah, I guess the Jews mocked him and reviled him, as it says, but he finds converts. He finds people willing to listen of Gentiles. He finds this, this, this uh, Titius uh, Justus and this Crispus, they, they, and the many other Corinthians believed. And so you see success happening. So why does Paul need reassurance? Well, I think he needs reassurance because but, but it seems like most of the Jewish people were mocking him. His kinsmen, people he shares an ethnic identity with, a historical background with, and they deny the gospel. And you can imagine he's torn up inside because of that, which is why, might be why he gets a little frustrated and he says, no, the, your blood's going to be on your heads. I'm not at fault here. You guys choose to reject the gospel. I'm now going to the Gentiles. And so you can imagine he needs some reassurance in the midst of his success of people coming to know Christ. But also, if you look back at his history, Paul knows that when people start to know who Christ is and come to become Christians, that's when the opposition grows heavier. That is, when people become Christians, that riot starts. When people become Christians, that's when he has to flee town. When people start becoming Christians, that's when he's beaten and locked up in jail. And so he knows what happens. He's like, I've seen this script before. 
People are coming to know Christ, and he just knows what's going to happen. He says, what's it going to be? Is it going to be a riot? Is it going to be I'm going to be locked in jail? Or am I going to be beaten again? He just thinks this is how it's going to happen. And so you can see how he might need or needs reassurance. And he receives reassurance in this mission from God, mainly through this vision that God gives him, afraid. God knew exactly what was going on in Paul's mind. God knew that Paul was afraid. He's like, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know how people are going to respond. I don't know how Corinth is going to treat me when people start to come to know Christ. And so he's afraid, and God says, don't be afraid. And he gives them the best reason not to be afraid. I am with you. God says to Paul, don't be afraid. I am with you. God's presence should alleviate any fear that Paul has. There's an amazing thing about presence. My four-year-old daughter can do nothing on her own. She can't go to another room without you having, you having to follow her. She can't, if you leave the room, she finds you and she'll say, I want you with me. And like, how can you say no to that? But somehow I find the strength to say no to that a lot. <laughs> but she wants her parents with her because she knows the value of that presence. When someone's bigger who loves them and is there with them, she feels secure. She wants that presence. Even in the bathroom, she wants that presence presence she realizes how valuable and reassurance we have when we know god is with us when the creator of the universe the one who spun the galaxies in their place the one who set the stars in the film at the one who made all created you and, and knit you together in your mother's room and this god says i am with you it should reassure us and comfort us. And Paul hears this, and he trusts this. God is with him. But God also promises him, says, no one is going to attack you to cause you harm. He knows exactly what Paul is dealing with. He knows exactly what Paul is fearing. And so he addresses that and says, hey, you might experience some conflict, but guess what? I will be protecting you. I love this account because we see it played out just like that. Paul was protected. Because that's what we see in this whole account of how he was ministering there for a year and some months, and then all of a sudden some Jews try to bring him before the proconsul, uh, Gallio, and they bring him before that. And so Paul's like, oh no, here we go again. This is where the shoe drops. This is where I'm going to be jailed. This is might be where I'm beaten. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And so he's, he's, he's probably fearful in this time, and he's opening his mouth to speak his defense. And right before he's about to speak, Gallio in that moment, you have to imagine Paul recalling this vision and going, it's true. God promised no harm would come to me. God promised I would not be hurt here in Corinth. And God uses even Gallio, this pagan Roman proconsul, to fulfill that. And so Paul continues to minister there because he knows the reality that he has been reassured and protected because God is moving them. And all of this, the reassurance, 
that he's with them, that, that do not be afraid, that he's protected. All of this is for the reason that he can go on speaking and not be silent. That God says, I'm doing this, I'm reassuring you, I'm refreshing you, I'm protecting you for this purpose that you can continue to preach the gospel and continue to spread my word to those who need to hear. God refreshes and reassures his servants. And he does the same with us. I'm not saying that we should expect a vision to be a reassured or expect a vision when times are hard, but I am saying that God does reassure us. He reassures us through his word. He reassures us through his community that when we are seeking to honor God, when we're living for him, with us, that when we walk into this dark world, wherever we go, we bring God with us and that we can be reassured that he's moving for us, that we can be reassured that he's going to use us, that we can be reassured that he's not going to let us experience things that we cannot bear, but he's going to give us the strength to even experience hardships and still praise his name and preach the gospel and proclaim his truth to all who would hear. That we can be reassured that the same God who loved Paul so much that he gave him this vision is the same God that we follow, who loves us in the same way, and he's going to reassure us through this community and through his word that he is going to continue to use us. And that what we do is not in vain, but that God is there with us, working through us. It's one of the reasons I love 1 Corinthians 15, 58, because it's a, it's a verse I keep on having to preach to myself when Paul, talking to this same church that's being planted in Corinth, says this, Therefore, dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor, labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why is it not in vain? Because God is with you. Why is it not in vain? Because God is reassuring you of the truth that he's working through his church. God, the truth of this account is that God cares for his people. Which means... He cares for us. I don't know where you are this morning. We all have these different lives that we bring with us when we come in the morning, but maybe you're at your wit's end. Maybe you're stressed, anxious, worried, depressed. Maybe life is just not going how you thought it should go or how you think it should go. Maybe you think life is just enjoying kicking you when you're down. Maybe you're experiencing times of your family hurting or confusion. It seems to be overwhelming in your life. If that is you, you should know the truth that God refreshes you. That we can find refreshment in God. It's not just something we say, but it's actually the truth that when we come to know who God is and we read his word, we can be refreshed in his purposes in life. When we know who God is and we spend time in prayer, we can be refreshed knowing that we can lay all our anxieties, all of our worries, all our troubles at the feet of Christ and he takes care of it. When we know who Christ is and seek to live him, we can come together with our brothers and sisters and be refreshed that we truly can be refreshed by God. That we re realize the, the truth of Psalm 23, which there's a reason it's the, one of the most popular psalms. That we realize the truth that God is leading us. That we realize that God brings refreshment to your soul. Maybe you're at a point in your life where confusion's reigning. You're wondering what comes next. 
Maybe you're at a crossroads and you have to make those big decisions. Maybe you're about to embark on a new stage in your life. Or maybe you're just struggling to see how you can honor God where you are right now. And you're just wondering, does God still use me? Can he still use me? In the midst of that, we need to know the reassurance that comes from God. To know that our God, our Father in heaven, the one who started that good work in you, he's going to bring it to completion. That he's not done with you yet. That he's going to use you for his purposes. That he has plans for you. That all those truths, all those promises in the Bible about how he has plans and purposes for these people of God, we know that that shows the heart of who God is. That shows the heart of who God, that God has for us, his people. And so we can trust in that, that God is going to use us, that God reassures us through his word and his community that we can be his and be used by him every day that we can be reassured that God is not done with us. And this all happens in Christ. That in Jesus Christ, it's not about us. It's not about how well I can live this life. It's not how well I can follow God. It's not how well I can do what he requires me because I can't do it well enough. But I'm refreshed because Christ has done it all. That all I need to do is trust in Him and He will give me what I need for this life. All I need to do is trust that He has saved me and I can be refreshed because I know it's not about me and my goodness. Little it is, it's about who Christ is and how He lived for us, died for us, and rose for us. What more refreshment do we need in this treadmill world then realize Christ said it is finished and he has saved us. And we find reassurance in Christ as well. For when we realize that God, who already has given us his son, how will he not possibly give us everything else we need? He's already given us his son. How will he not finish what he started in us? We can be reassured that God, through Christ, is willing to work and finish what he has decided to do with us and bring us to who he has made us to be. We can have that reassurance in Christ that God loves us and is working in us and know his reassurance that he refreshes and reassures his servants. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. A word that meets us where we are, that in the midst of pain, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of a busy life, we can see the reality that you love us and work in us and that you bring us what we need.